0: <laughs> scripts everywhere oh, cool okay yep three two one hello and welcome back to technically speaking a natwest podcast where we're exploring issues sparked
1: by tech i and one of your hosts wincy wong and i'm your other host bulger Crowberg. today we're going to be talking about the tech elite this is a topic
0: that started to come up more and more recently. So I was on LinkedIn and someone posted this video about the top global corporations by market cap over the last 25 years. And what I thought was fascinating was watching those newer tech companies on this bar chart rise up, grow and replace those more traditional corporates.
1: Just to add to that, Wincy and I were having a conversation a while back about the area in which I work in, and specifically the interaction between quantitative developers, who are essentially the builders of tech, and the traders, who would be their clients. So these quants are incredibly technical and mathematical people, I would say. And they can be at times an insular bunch. And As such, the collaboration element of developing new functionality for these traders doesn't always kick in. So if things continue the way that they're going at the moment and the builders continue down this road, this exclusionary road, this exclusionary environment, will we get to a place where the tech elite, these people who have the most technical skills, are the new 1%, the people with the most power? So to help us explore this, we've invited
0: the amazing Shafali Yogendra into the studio.
1: Now, for those of you listening, you may not know who Shafali is, but she is a force to be reckoned with. She's a non-executive director on the board of J.P. Morgan's U.S. Smaller Companies Investment Trust. More recently... She has been appointed as COO of Ditto AI and is head of Ditto X at her company. Shafali, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having
1: me.
0: So, you've been listening patiently to us talk about what
2: we're seeing in terms of the tech elite. So, what is your opinion? So, if we talk about tech elitism, we should first ask what elitism is. And traditionally, elites were the people who controlled the factors of production. So when you talk about tech elitism, we are talking about people who produce technology. And the way to look at the impact of tech elitism is to look at the impact of technology on people who use technology. We have to consider the impact of technology as is developed today on society and various people in society. That includes talking about who controls the money, who generates the money, who determines how we are going to behave with technology, which is embedded everywhere in our life today. So in terms of the tech elite, what we're talking about are those who are using technology
0: in its most advanced forms. Now we have this rise of these tech companies and the ones leading them do start from a more technical, maybe engineering background, if you want to be more specific.
2: So I trained as an engineer. That's my first degree. And Mm -hmm. what engineering teaches you, first and foremost, is how do you define the problem that you're solving? If you do not define the problem correctly, Mm -hmm. you can't solve it correctly. So as a quick example, if you were to be tasked with building a bridge and all you took into account was I'll make it out of wrought iron and painted red, that's not a sufficient solution because the problem of a bridge being designed takes into account what is the river span that it's going to cover? How much traffic will be on it? What are the weather conditions and climatic conditions that will make the metal react to the load and to hotness or coldness of temperatures and so on? So you see, engineering, first and foremost, is about defining what is the problem that you're solving. So when you talk about people in technology companies and technology companies themselves becoming powerful, you're essentially talking about are they defining and solving the right problems? And to that extent, the tech elite being limited set of thinking people, people who define problems as they see them without taking into account the broader considerations of society, they'll be solving problems that please them. There was a tweet that
0: went a bit viral where you saw that someone wanted to apply for a job who was digitally excluded. So we know as a bank that in the UK, if you make under £20,000 per annum, 17% of those people do not have access to the internet and do not use it. So one of these people went to the library and actually said, I'm looking to apply for a job. So someone at the library said, I'll help you, absolutely. And there's some free internet there. So as they were going through that job application, they needed an email. So she said, oh, well, I don't have an email. And the person helping said, well, let me help you register. Turns out that all the major providers, so Google and the like, where she was trying to register an email required two-factor authentication, which means that they need to verify your identity with a phone number and a text. However, this lady also did not have a phone. So she couldn't receive any text or a call, except for at the shelter she was living at. So she was unable to actually apply for this job. And now she's in this cycle where because she's excluded, where she doesn't have the internet, and she doesn't have um, access to a phone that she's not able to get herself
2: out of that cycle. One of my favorite websites uses deep menus hidden behind gray colored ellipses on a white screen. That doesn't work for people who wear reading glasses of which I am one now. So that is another example of when people developing technology are young with perfect vision, working in air conditioned offices. Don't worry about how people use the phone they create or application they create in the wild. They actually don't care about the end user. So to your point is the 1% Now, the elite that's determining how we all use technology? Yes, they are. Are they doing it well? I don't think so. I think people like us, who are not quite tech elite, who are high-powered users of technology products, but probably not, unlike Bulju, creating technology, we do need to have a say. Shafali, some people might see you as being part of the tech elite. From many people's point of view, I look like the elite. I studied business, I studied technology policy, and ended with the PhD. I work in an ethical and responsible AI company. I am a C-level officer in a tech company. So all of these experiences make people think I am the technology elite. What they forget, however, is that I grew up in a developing country. I studied disciplines which were not majority women, but majority men. I worked my way through the world where everyone was different. And that gives, I won't say I'm the most empathetic person on the planet, but it has given me heightened sensitivity to the idea of difference. And when you look at difference, you try and probe what is it that that difference has given the other person as an advantage. So if you have grown up in a poor country, it makes you more resourceful a lot of times. If you grow up in a rich country, for instance, you take electricity for granted. There are little things like that which can enrich how that person frames the problem. A person who's different from you frames the same problem, looks at the same thing, sees something different. And that's essentially what informs my worldview on this idea of tech elitism. Uh, I think about no down ramps, for instance, for their wheelchair or people who are trying to walk on uneven footpaths using their stick because they're visually challenged. I think about Design challenges and how they could be addressed. And therefore, that's the thinking I bring to my work on boards. I bring that thinking to my day job as the CEO of Ditto AI and to my work as an advocate for women on boards and board apprentice program. And wherever I can, I support Vinci and Zhu in their work to bring more women in tech and make more inclusive leadership and technology happen. We love you. We love you. I know, and I'm sure both of you do as well, a range of women founders in London who are creating products which is to challenge the exclusionary dynamic of how technology is normally created.
0: In terms of what I do in my day job, I come up with digital propositions. I, I look at the future and, and really on the customer and user side of it. How do I get people like Bourjou? you know, these, these insular quantitative developers who have all these PhDs, more PhDs than, you know, smiles, then how do we bridge that divide? How do we make sure that those who see that exclusion get to those who are
1: controlling the build of those solutions? Obviously, it's hard to know what to pinpoint the problem on. But at the same time, there are some clear things that we're doing that we could be doing better. And I don't think it's just a you know diversity and inclusion issue. I think it's more about thinking more about the people around us. And as we become more and more insular, the more and more we use technology, constantly looking down at our phones as we're crossing the street, people hitting us, we are becoming less and less aware of the people around us and how we're impacting them more so than ever.
0: As a... Most connected society, but yet the most lonely society sometimes.
1: Thank you from our cliche generator.
2: Thank
0: you, Bourjou.
2: Shavali, too. So, to Vinci's question earlier, how do you bridge the divide? Some of the answer is in educating, the other answer is in diversifying the ranks of the producers. I'll give you an example from my day job. We have highly educated first class engineers in the organization, but recently we decided that we are going to. Fish in a different pond, so we went to a really good coding school called Northcoders, and we hired somebody who we would have never probably got through an agency because the agency does CV churning, they do tick boxing. We went there, and she was most wonderful. She's a career changer. She came to writing software code because she wanted to do it, and she has fit really brilliantly. But the bottom line remains, we went somewhere else, we looked differently, we looked at different kinds of people, we found someone different who was extremely brilliant in every way that the job needed. So if you cannot diversify the ranks of the producers, expecting users to have anything different by way of experience than they have been having is an expectation quite far.
1: Absolutely. So there's an element there of, um, you know, being aware of things. And I think we are getting to a place where even the largest corporates now are acknowledging this as part of the problem. However, technology, I think the point that I would make is that technology has grown so fast that there aren't the correct checks in place to make sure this kind of thing is happening. It's kind of catching up. But we're not quite there yet. And until we get there, my personal view on it is that there should be more pressure from the outside. And that could be from anywhere.
2: It could be from governments, it could be from independent bodies. Pressure from stakeholders always makes a difference, but it has to be applied at the correct leverage points and in the right quantities at the right time. But remember that when there is a power imbalance, power is never ceded willingly by the powerful. It has to be Seized from them. So essentially, we are talking about how do the technologically powerless get the technologically powerful to consider them human enough to engage so that the design and production processes change. And that is where it is important, as I said earlier, to diversify the ranks of the producers, the people who design and develop products and technology and take into account people who are different in age different in ability different socio-economic uh, capabilities where they live what they use it for everybody doesn't use uh, technology for the same end everybody isn't on twitter although people on twitter believe the whole world is on twitter and therefore only the twitter views matter so to think about what is it that we are serving will not naturally come till the ranks of people who are asking this question are asking different questions from the ones they have been asking a long time.
0: Shafali, you are an extremely amazing, incredible human being, a role model for all those who are not feeling like they can be part of the tech elite, but are working towards it. So thank you very much today for your thoughts. That was hugely
2: insightful. Thank you, Shafali, And thank you for having me, Vinci and Burju.
0: So we've been talking about how this new tech elite are those who are controlling production of the technology. They're dictating how we use it and only solving the problems that they see. So there is a lot more that needs to be done to diversify the ranks of these producers. These are people who are designing,
1: creating our world around us. So this is the perfect time to bring in our next guest, who happens to be one of those tech producers, Alex Ferfega, co-founder of Komuzi. He is a creative technologist who is constantly building, breaking, coding and innovating for clients all over the world. At the forefront of innovation, he builds everything from design workshops for corporates to making it easy to order jerk chicken with an Alexa smart speaker. So...
0: Alex, we were just talking about how the people who control the producers of the tech control the effect for the end user and therefore are in power or are the tech elite. What do you think?
3: It's interesting because I've been doing a lot of talks recently about inclusive design. So I've been basically talking about how the 15% design the world for 85% of others. And when I look at that 15%, I look at visionaries. But you then have people who continuously build that visionary's vision. From my perspective, coming from a West African background, coming from a low and working-class background, me getting a job at a big tech company is a big ideal thing. I know how much that money getting paid by that big tech company doesn't only support me, but it probably supports three to four other family members at that same time. I might have an issue with the values of this organisation but it's very hard for me to just jump and leave so I try to not necessarily be like people are controlled I think people are either buying into that vision and doing stuff however we are seeing people standing up and we're having walkouts in particular companies in regards to stuff and that sort of disrupting the flow of power in place. Have
1: you ever pushed back yourself?
3: My whole work is all about pushback but it's easy for me coming from an outside perspective you know if you think of it in the last couple years There's been like conversations about, you know, ethical design, inclusive design. You know, if you're looking to artificial intelligence, for example, there's been issues about bias in algorithms, you know, looking at a racial perspective in regards to maybe racial recognition or predictive policing.
0: How do you do more inclusive design? I mean, the people who are traditionally building experiences will build for themselves and their own experiences. How do you challenge that?
3: We, we like to say that we're trying to model the future to inform the present. So a lot of our work has been, like, exploring particular futures, um, especially when you think about ethical AI space. It's quite dominated by academics and, like, researchers. They really do really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I come from a, I'm not an ethicist, I'm not a social scientist. I'm an interaction designer, I studied, I went to design school, I write code and that particular stuff. So for me, it was always about, okay, how can we take these learnings and actually put that in a practical way where we could literally say to people who are working in this world, who so don't necessarily engage in those conversations. This is how you can implement some sort of ethical AI practices. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of our work is very much that type of stuff. Yeah. And
1: Do you feel like you can influence?
3: So what happened is when I especially looked at the work around racial bias and gender bias in AI systems, I go back to those of diversity and inclusion panels. And I was like, forget this, I'm not doing this. And the reason what, what we happened... You know the feeling. <laughs> personally, I saw this as in the work that I've done because my work was looking at data sets. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was like, I should be sitting on stuff around data and how do we talk about the data sets we're using to train these algorithms? You know, how do we sort of dismantle that? Or how do we create new data sets?
1: Seeing your expertise you know, and, and not expertise, your yeah, yeah, and but your mean, identity. Yeah. So bringing the conversation back a tiny bit, um, you know, one of the things that we are trying to discuss here is who is controlling the world and do we feel that we are able to influence them so i guess that what i'm hearing is that you are utilized for a particular purpose over and over again when in reality people aren't seeing beyond that so in trying to build more inclusion they're actually excluding you from a lot of other things because now you've been pigeonholed as that inclusion person. How do you think people can influence these people who control the world, the tech elite?
3: It's hard, but <laughs> you know th- we do live in this sort of capitalistic system where somebody is going to it's going to win at the expense of somebody's loss, or at expense of somebody's stuff. And the only way maybe these companies would pay attention. Is a if there is pushback from their employees, if they are pushed back from their customers, because you touch the profits, you touch, you know, for example, some of the investors in Amazon try to push a vote in around like Amazon selling facial recognition technology to the governments and other stuff. They're, some of the like activist investors were trying to do stuff. They initially failed. However, that can prompt Amazon to think, okay, this is from an investor level this is a particular thing we probably have So to pay we did
1: actually to. talk about this exactly this with mm. Shafali uh, a second ago um, the idea that you know the the push should it come externally or should it come internally and i guess it needs to come from both because even if it fails internally it can succeed the next time right so you just don't stop we came to the conclusion earlier that the tech elite did exist they potentially do make the, you know, biggest controlling faction in the world right now and that the producers of products are the people who will control the future. And yet here we have you, a producer, who doesn't feel that they can actually influence the people who need to be influenced.
3: Oh, no, I think I can influence. The only way you can necessarily change stuff is you need to find a way how to get a seat on the table. You know hopefully everybody started talking about diversity and inclusion and you just milked your way in that's like the only strip it? <laughs> so
1: the door is open everyone. So, so everyone, everyone, walk in. everyone the door is open please walk in right but, now
3: I don't think it's a little bit open it's like when companies hire an inclusive officer but give them no budget and tell them hey you need to change the whole organization yeah. i see that so much times. So i think it was just more like i'm not doing the diversity and inclusion stuff i need to be respected as a Interaction designer, I need to be respected as a technologist. Then I need other people who work in that same field to also respect me. The only way you can create change is being on the table. However, do these people care?
0: One thing we were talking about earlier is about how I saw this graph that was over 25 years to show how the market cap corporates, uh, the largest in the world, changed over time. Yeah. Uh, and they were all replaced by technology companies now at the top. So does that change how the power has been distributed.
3: It's interesting now where I'm hearing like Elizabeth Warren talking about how she wants to break up some of the technology companies in the States because she feels like they're too big and then the EU have had these conversations about breaking up companies and stuff. The whole tech elitism thing is a very interesting conversation. Obviously, I work for myself, so I'm not really maybe bound by stuff or I think I can be a bit provocative and, like, challenge things from an outside perspective's viewpoint. And I think people are open to that type of way of thinking now. But I always tend to think about the minorities working in those organisations who see these things and want to challenge these things. But necessarily the systems have been set up that if you challenge, you're gone, you're finished, you're out of the system.
0: Well, thank you so much, Alex. This was extremely fascinating topic to talk about with you about you're doing some incredible things so I am uh, super excited to see what you do next thanks everyone for listening today's podcast is brought to you by NetWest if you like what we're doing and you want to hear and watch Alex and Shafali live we will have them on stage in a conference that we're hosting in London in October 2019 the conference is called Future Fit Upskilling for the Future to learn more about the topics we've discussed today and lots of other practical tools, insight, and knowledge, just search NetWest Business Hub or head to natwestbusinesshub.com. Thanks for listening.